0: This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. And you have declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening
1: has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of
0: what occurred, my motives. And night fell on a different world. And if this is thinking, you know... I should
2: be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how does the army feel about
0: you being head of the temple of Seth?
2: And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will. but I
0: want you to give me power over Adam. And I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. The people that have, have so much to gain and have such a material motive for putting a position on we will never let the true facts come about to the, the world. And I want to be able to give me the ability to whisper into the hearts of mankind. And uh, who was
1: the grotto leader? Don't remember his name. You don't remember the name of a person who involved you in murder? Very high yeah. Yeah, I mean this is actually interesting about his psychology, what they write in this essay. In Herzl's con- it kinda of goes to what we're talking about, in Herzl's conception, Jewish deficiency was to be healed by appropriating the secrets and sources of modern power. But if Herzl's hagiographers have neglected this side of the man, to see nothing but Jewish self-immolation in his Zionism is equally wrong. For Stewart flattens out the Herzl image, bearing all the contours of his Jewish self-hate, reveling in neurotic deformation, seemingly empty of redeeming qualities. Herzl's conversion experience, his exhilarating sense of freedom, his charisma, his extraordinary persuasiveness, could not all have been the result of a self-immolating ressentiment. At the very least... Herzl harbored a tense, ambivalent mix of Jewish self-hate and pride. Freud has stressed how much humans seesaw between love and hostility, feelings of superiority and inferiority, pride and self-abasement. Herzl embodies these torments of the human conditions in a passionately felt, explosive mix. In a towering rage, Herzl rebelled against his profound sense of Jewish deficiency. The majority culture had hollowed him out, turned him inside out, fashioned a pitiably reactive self-image for him, destined him to measure himself through others' eyes. Sometimes, hardly always, Zionism meant overcoming this condition— Herzl's rage had its sources in residual Jewish pride and self-affirmation. Even before his conversion to Zionism, Jewish pride still forged a tenuous link with his heritage. He never changed his Jewish name, though his career as an author gave him an excuse for doing so. In the famous incident that precipitated his departure from Albia, the German nationalist dueling fraternity, oh, it was a dueling <laughs> fraternity, there you go, it was Herzl Why who did initiated he love the break. dueling? Because he's a, he's a Germanophile, like they're about that. Like, yeah. So it was Hartzell who initiated the break. A fraternity brother had addressed a Wagner memorial meeting in ringings anti-Semitic phrases. Though the university suspended him, the fraternity celebrated him as, as a free speech martyr and hero. Yeah, basically, That's as hilarious. martyr and hero. In a stinging letter, Hartzell resigned from the fraternity as Elon uh, Musk. No, as a historian Elon points out. Three other Jewish members stayed on until they were later forced out. Zionism was not only to produce that, quote, Darwinian mimicry Herzl believed would be the salutary result of anti-Semitism. It would also free Jews from the slavishness of their reactive self-image. No longer encircled by a host people, they would be en famille, a society pledged to a freer, less constrained self-definition. As Herzl once said, quote, There was only one way out of this Jewish suffering, namely to return to Judaism. While the main thrust of his vision was toward the improvement of Jews through total assimilation, the struggle for a positive Jewish identity nevertheless remained a haltingly articulated theme. Insisting that Herzl's concern with Jewish power was simply a far-seeing response to antisemitism, wholly ignoring his contempt for Jews and his desire to remake them in the Gentile mold, the hagiographers are unable to assess the limits of Her- Herzelian Zionism. Herzl fits a type described by Rupert Emerson dominating the first phase of nationalist leadership among a colonized people. Westernized, torn loose from their roots, these leaders are at the same time spurned by the dominant Europeans. Herzl could well have echoed Nehru's plaintive statement, I am a stranger and alien in the West, I cannot be of it, but in my own country also sometimes, I have an exile's feelings. Once bitten by Europe, these men absorb its perspectives and suffer from, uncritical self-humiliation and the acceptance of alien superiority. Measured against Europe, native history seems a despised catalog of superstition, ignorance, and political impotence. Their people must be remade into masters by adapting the West's instruments of power, modern government, science, and technology. Herzl's preoccupation with Jewish power was of a piece with his extraordinarily impoverished understanding of Jewish life. His image of the Jew was of a being wholly shaped by persecution, the tough, subtle culture of Judaism— Talmudic intellectuality, Kabbalistic mysticism, Hasidism, the cycles of Jewish revitalization movements that dotted the centuries of Jewish life in Europe, all these were a closed book to him. Marked by superstition and fanaticism, they represented a pathetic overcompensation for suffering. The medieval ghetto, in Herzl's view, had been a prison, not a creative, self-governing polity. The great Jewish enterprise of modern times was to throw off the survivals of this historic experience— As Nordau insisted, in words that reflected Herzl's own convictions, before Herzl, it had been, quote, either an affliction or a disgrace to be a Jew. Herzl was a ferocious westernizer. His hopes for the Jewish future are best studied in Altneuland, Old New Land, his novelistic description of the Zionist commonwealth 25 years after its founding. Old New Land exudes the spirit of Western civilization— it is a European outpost in the Near East, figuratively and literally, a stop on the Berlin-Baghdad Railroad, Europe's new tentacle towards Asia. The culture of the new society is secular and non-sectarian, lacking Jewish foundations and Jewish roots. Its learned academy does not foster a national language or culture, promoting instead a universalist philosophy. I think This is where Daniel Pinchbeck maybe uh, gets on the board the Zionist train. Hmm. Jews, Muslims, and Christians mix intimately and harmoniously, for the new society belongs to all men. But Herzl's universalism was hardly neutral. It was a euphemism for assimilation into European culture. Ethnic and religious differences no longer matter, but only because all are good Europeans. Shorsky correctly sees in Alt Neuland Herzl's profound desire for Jewish assimilation. balked from assimilation in Europe... Jews would shape a new Europe in the Middle East, where they would complete the task of normalizing themselves. After 25 years in a land of their own, the Jewish achievement lay in developing and adapting the culture of Europe. In the new society, Jewish culture, spawned in the ghetto, shaped by isolation and persecution, would survive as the residue of folklore. Far from nourishing Jewish particularity, the new society would, re- would render its expression superfluous and irrelevant, Jewish culture, born of oppression, would wither in the high tide of liberation. We have not far to go to find parallels to Herzl's attitude to Jewish particularism. For Kemal Ataturk, too, a civilized Turkey, meant a wholly westernized one and required a full-scale break with the culture of the East. The benighted expressions of Turkish particularism were to be ruthlessly swept aside. Islam was no longer to shape Turkey's public life. Arabic script, quote, those incomprehensible signs that for centuries have <laughs> held their minds. It's really amazing iron how
3: people named like Kamal and like, yeah, we'll get into some more of this, like, especially in the midst of World War One when all of this like tension was like kind of coming to a head, like the sort of ethno-nationalist tensions like within yeah. the Ottoman Empire. But yeah, it's just amazing to see people whose names are like, literally like Kamal or Ahmed Kamal and things like Jamal, that. Yeah. Like, seething and foaming at the mouth about, like, how much they hate Arabs (laughs) and how worthless Arab culture is. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: It's really wild. It's really wild. And even though Arabic was not, uh, as, like, Antonius talks about, like, Arabic was in kind of more of a slump era, you know, at this time, like, the 19th century, going into the 20th century, like, it was kind of reawakening. But I guess maybe this is, like, their reaction to you know the yeah paranoia well of, that's like kind of again as i was kind
3: of saying before we started recording like or even part as of I antonius's we first uh up, bias he, he, like a little you know like uh this whole thing of like the arabic uh nadha i think is probably what he's referring to like the or the uh, arab enlightenment which is kind of this idea like again it's he's similar to what we're talking about now like in a, in a certain way like he's all Arab nationalism also, especially that uh, strain, even uh, you can even see it in, in Radeh a little bit. He kind of like, I think it's part of the reason why he related to to Herzl or to, to Zionism early on was because he saw like a similar kind of like need to, you know, keep like an Islamic or Muslim character, right? Yeah. In the same way that like Herzl wanted to keep some kind of Jewish character, but also mm-hmm. like, you know, modernize like it kind of this is a uh, or like uh, MB ideology. But yeah, like, uh, Antonius is a similar thing where it's like mm. his, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, he has his own kind of, um, pet issues in his own perspective. As an of pet Arab Christian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But mm. it's similar where it's like, you know, oh, we were in darkness, we were in shame. And now like, we need to like, you know, m- m- there's actually a term, uh... I'm trying to remember uh, what it is. Into gas? I think that might be it, but uh, I'm not, I don't quite remember. But it's like lighting your flame from someone else's torch. That was like mm. kind of a, a watchword Ooh. of like, you know, Arab uh, intelligentsia in the early 20th century, uh, which is basically, you know, taking like the fire from the West and like using it to oh. light like our own society. So it sounds
1: yeah. kind of similar to like what Herzl basically is. Yeah, like, he needs to regenerate, like, the Jew into basically uh, becoming equal with, like, the European states by building an outpost of Europe in uh, Palestine. So it's weird. It's interesting because it's, like, in a way, it's counterintuitive. You would think that moving to a new region in, like, West Asia, despite the ancestral kind of ancient religious links, like, this is a place that European Jews hadn't really uh, lived for over a thousand years and you would expect one maybe to adapt a little bit to the place you're going to like and i mean there's there certain expressions of that of like uh particularly when we get into like labor zionism and this sort of like kibbutz system of uh, like we need jews to become like tough agricultural workers and not just like doctors and lawyers yeah. and things like that but it would it, it more but it's almost like yeah agricultural people on the european like according to a European model of like what agricultural workers are and what everything else is. And then all the technocratic management kind of uh, parts of the economy that came after that. um, It's all very modeled on a kind of Europeanized, you know, idea of, uh, and so that, that also I think explains why uh, the, the existing Palestinians were so invisible to Herzl because, uh they're just inconvenient for instead of i don't know like thinking well you're moving to another place where people live uh and you know that that could be a complicating factor he just chooses kind of to like ignore it uh ignore their entire population and not think at all about uh kind of coexistence or you know i mean some people would say things half-heartedly about you know oh it'll probably be good for like whatever arabs are around like well it'll elevate right. them and it'll make them more european yeah there's too. like
3: one arabic character in like or arab character in uh alt new land i think who's like you know kind of like i don't know a technician or an engineer or something he he does a permaculture farming a permaculture expert yeah <laughs> yeah exactly. Um, exactly yeah it it was uh ictibas was the word i was thinking of. i guess i should know that uh uh kaf uh bah scene is like having to do with like flame but uh you know mm-hmm. you yeah, yeah lighting yeah. a flame from someone else's torch yeah
1: yeah that's yeah so wow actually Atatürk, uh in a traumatizing symbolic act he outlawed the fez and decreed civilized dress to mean the european suit after he took power so that's pretty uh provocative let me see i just want to read a little more this is an interesting article um okay Yeah. Among Herzl interpreters, uh, Bean has the greatest difficulty facing up to Herzl's rejection of Jewish particularism. Bean's Herzl, revered father of the Jewish state, was meant to speak to all of Zionism's ideologies, cultural, socialist and political. His image of Herzl is flattened out, situated beyond party and ideological contention. As a consequence, Herzl's offhand attitude to the Hebrew language is treated with embarrassing unease. Herzl feared the turn to Hebrew would limit contact with the advanced civilization of the West, but Bean claims he was merely indifferent, but, quote, by no means an opponent of the Renaissance of Hebrew. Bean informs us that Alt Neuland promoted bitter and demoralizing internal controversy. He then suggests that Herzl's opponents read the book unfairly, missing its, quote, profound love for Palestine and, quote, faith in the land. No such archaic love and faith moved Herzl. If Herzl was single-mindedly bent upon purchasing Jewish power through massive westernization, this view had its glaring limitations. National cohesion requires far more than slavish imitation. It requires an affirmation of particularism, refashioning native culture along lines appropriate to modern sensibilities, linking the past to the present once again, enclosing modern identity in a sense of inherited continuities. Rupert Emerson has pointed out that central to the dialectic of nation-building is the conflict between those bent upon restoring native culture and history and those oriented to full-scale westernization. The quarrel that beset Zionism in its first decade between Herzl and Ahad uh, Ahad Ha'am, the ideological father of cultural Zionism, I think we mentioned him in the last uh, episode as an early critic of uh, the resettlement plans, Their quarrel centered upon just this issue. The quarrel has some parallels to the dispute between Nehru and Gandhi. For Ahad Ham, Zionism was not so much an answer to the survival of the Jews as it was to the survival of Judaism. Judaism had been eroded by secularism. What was needed was a new understanding of Jewish identity appropriate to modernity. Zionism's first task was to foster a Hebrew cultural revival— one that affirmed Jewish particularism and maintained links with the Jewish past while redefining Judaism in social and ethical terms that accorded with modernist sensibilities. One settlement in Palestine, radiating a vital Hebrew culture, would kindle far more love for the ancient homeland than a hundred ideologically inert ones. Instead of viewing this quarrel as evidence of the Achilles heel of his Zionism, much of the Herzl scholarship simply rejoins the conflict in a barren effort to vindicate him. In his classic history of Zionism, Adolf Baum uh, puts the issue in terms of Herzl's superior calculation of Zionist priorities. An astute revolutionary in the mold of Lenin, Herzl understood that the pursuit of minimalist goals could easily thrust maximalist goals into a remote and hazy future. He therefore insisted that no resources be diverted from the struggle for Jewish power and sovereignty. Cultural work would only weaken Zionism's political thrust. The issue is hardly that of Herzl's far-seeing preoccupation with Jewish power. Clearly, Ahad Ham supplied Zionism with an ingredient Herzl could never hope to supply— Ahad Ham's long-term perspective, oriented to the creation of a modern Hebrew culture, provided Zionism's staying power in the fallow years of political Zionism, from the turn of the century to the Balfour Declaration, when Herzlian Zionism's thrust had temporarily exhausted itself. Ideological stamina had to draw from a profound vision of the meaning of Jewish particularism, the return to biblical sources, seeking new possibilities for modern Jewish identity, the attempt to anchor modern values to Jewish continuities was the work of the ideologues, men like Ahad Ham and A.D. Gordon, not Herzl. Yeah, so, I mean, there's more here, but I think you kind of uh, get the idea of, like, Herzl's uh, complicated... uh, Kind of a, his particular approach, which I guess eventually kind of gets more or less adopted by the different pre-existing Zionist factions, like the Russian Zionists, were the uh, the Hovavai Zion, right, the lovers of Zion. Yeah, right. Had set up uh, settlements in Palestine in the eighteen eighties,
3: and right. at first the, they were like really, you know, not as influential as like yeah, people like Rothschild who like or like foreign donors who actually were more supportive because they just didn't have the, the resources. But eventually they became like a bigger deal.
1: Yeah, and this is also a reaction because the sort of a, the the era of like pogroms uh, really kick off in like the early 1880s, right? In the mm-hmm. the Pale of Settlement uh, in the Russian Empire, which I think caused several million Jews to migrate, a lot of them to the United States, uh, but uh, smaller numbers of them did go uh, probably in the tens of thousands, settled in uh, these little Kind of settlements in Palestine uh, in the 1880s and 90s, and a, a lot of these books have, you know, pointed out. I guess we've touched on it before, but they're kind of like, a, I don't know, Kautskyite, like social democratic, quasi-Marxist orientation, uh, as opposed to the sort of crowd around Herzl and people in Austria, Hungary, and Germany who were much more like liberal, just straight up like like classical liberals you know yeah it's um, interesting like, like Herschel's
3: like what he talks about socialism you know like uh there's even an exchange between him and hirsch where which i feel like alex jones would have like a fun time with where Herschel is saying oh sorry hirsch first asked where will you get the money Rothschild will subscribe 500 francs the money i said with a defiant laugh i shall raise a jewish national loan fund of 10 million marks a fantasy smiled the baron the rich jewels will give nothing Wealthy people are mean and care nothing about the suffering of the poor. You talk like a socialist, Baron Hirsch. I am one, but quite ready to hand over everything, provided the others have to do likewise.
1: <laughs> no, uh, he's aware of Marx. Uh, yeah, 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 folks, they're like, all communists. I am one. No, yeah, they're globalists. They're yeah, the they're globalists. Yeah, the they're
3: globalists. So See, he yeah. is what the communists want. This is our point. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I think, uh, yeah, yeah.
1: I'm a socialist. Well, yeah, um, <laughs> I exactly. guess if everybody else gives up all their money, I mean, it's a yeah, ha, ha. He's making a joke.
3: Yes, exactly. He yeah. Herzl say. says, "I did not take his charming notion any more seriously than it was meant," and took my leave. His final words were, "This has not been our last conversation. As soon as I come over London again, I I shall let you hear from me." So, wow.
1: Okay, so you know we we've talked a bit about Herzl here. He does. He dies in 1904 there's a whole circle of kind of people around him that sort of, you know, take the banner, uh, like Max Nordau and, uh, and others. But yeah, for now that, that takes us into like the, uh, the pre world war one period where, you know, there is more, there's, I mean, at this point, Herzl did manage to like sit down with various heads of state, you know, I mean, he met Sultan Abdul Hamid, uh, you know kaiser wilhelm um, yeah we talked about various that. british officials
3: he was always yeah just flying around like trying to you know riz up whoever he could
1: exactly yeah. yeah he was constantly rizzing up people and in these uh zionist congresses yeah near the end of his life he did try like the British sort of floated this idea of like, what if we give you a bunch of land in Uganda to settle in? And the movie dramatizes this where he excitedly announces it. And then everyone, mostly the Russian faction like flips out and is like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like we're not, we're not going to another waiting oh like way station, you know, on the way to Zion. Like we're all about Zion. We need to go to Zion, like to Palestine and yeah. it's like Palestine or nothing. So then he had to eventually, I think it was, uh, maybe explore the idea was explored um but then dropped because there was too much opposition to it
3: yeah it was interesting that like in his recollection the catholic church was like so dismissive of the uganda idea but they were like i like this love for jerusalem you know or at least like the secretary of state was you know nordau had been attacked by that guy i guess presumably because he uh, opposed the Uganda idea, but was in favor of the Jerusalem idea. At least that's how uh, it seemed to be interpreted in that anecdote. A mentally Um, ill Jewish student tempted to assassinate him. But yeah. Maybe we should, like, you know, kind of get into, uh, get back into the Palestinian context, right? So we've definitely yeah, covered yeah. a fair amount of the uh, Zionist uh, ideology or, like, the early sort of uh, percolation of Zionism and yeah. s- you know, there's like a whole historiography to this period with like the first alia, yeah, and uh, I believe that's how uh, it's pronounced. Yeah, and uh, all of that stuff where that's kind of how they uh, envision these things. But, you know, it's interesting to think of it from kind of the the Ottoman perspective in the Ottoman context because this still was uh, an Ottoman dominion like up until the end of World War II when that would, sorry, World War, I. World I War one I. keep doing yeah. that. Yeah, <laughs> I guess it just goes to show how much more we talk about World War Two. Um, oh, yeah. yeah exactly. World War One, like, you yeah, know, people don't talk about it as much, but it was a huge thing. And like Easy I didn't forget because, World like, War Two is a sequel. Is, yeah. Maybe it's because like I feel like World War One is like much more obscure. Whereas like World War Two I guess there's like yeah, I mean, obviously it's uh more The goodies uh, and
1: baddies breakdown is exactly, very stark yeah. in World War Two and Whereas it's, like, like World much War One ambiguous. it's like what was
3: everyone fighting over exactly? And like uh, no, literally it's, like, like this. nobody it's except like, like Lenin
1: is uh like everyone kinda sucks in World War One, like to some degree. <laughs> like they're you know, it's like a lot of cynical power plays of all these like inbred second cousin monarchs like deciding to to scrap to get you know a little more of this or that territory and then it devolves into this horrible absurd nightmare that like has no like destroys all meaning for like an entire generation and probably gave like half the fucking population of europe ptsd and like yeah it's hard to explain like how world war ii came to be without talking about world war one like yeah really and not just europe but like also the, the causes League.
3: of world war one I, I feel like it the only thing i remember from my schooling about it up until like doing the reading research for this uh these episodes was like the assassination of archduke Franz ferdinand but to be honest yeah. like it would have been hard for me to like explain why that mattered <laughs> like or why that was significant it's interesting how that actually ties into like a lot of this same stuff right like, I mean, the, all the, the things we've been talking about and, are like, like are, are
1: tensions that that keep percolating more and more and more, and you can see in like the fifteen you know fifteen years or so leading up to World War One that they're really boiling over. Like another thing I was reading about in Antonius was the various railways that were built in the Arab regions uh, yeah. with the help of Germany in the early 1900s, and how. This was uh, seen by, let me see, I have a the, the little quote here from the book, where, uh, yeah, Abdul Hamid uh, struck this deal with the, the Kaiser, and uh, they built the Damascus to medina Hejaz railroad project, right? Mm-hmm. And um, Antonius wrote that Abdul Hamid's uh, accession coincided roughly with the birth of a new orientation in Germany's foreign policy, the Drangnachosten. For some time, economists and political writers in Germany had been devoting a good deal of attention to the possibilities of Asia Minor as a field for colonization, and the idea that it might become a German field had begun to make headway. In the course of time, it was adopted as the basis of a new policy, which was to establish German ascendancy in Constantinople and lead Kaiser Wilhelm II to make, in favor of Abdul Hamid's Islamic policy, one of his strangest demonstrations. But uh, I forget exactly what what that was um hold on yeah okay this is one of the strangest demonstrations a chapter was opened in 1883 when a german military mission arrived in constantinople to undertake the modernization of the sultan's army this is actually highly significant um this is like classic coup shit that happens it was headed by colonel von der goltz a capable and conscientious officer who for the next 13 years worked indefatigably at his task his passion for efficiency, however, was not altogether to the sultan's liking, for although he wanted his army improved, Abdul Hamid did not want too strong an army. He lived in dread right. of a military revolution, and he and his Camarilla worked in secret against von der Goltz. While the latter was putting his unflagging energy to overhauling every branch of the gimcrack military machine, agents of the palace were seeing to it that his efforts, insofar as they aimed at making the army into a strong, self-contained instrument, remained within the bounds of, quote, safety. Nevertheless, von der Goltz was able to achieve a great deal, and in one branch, that of military education, his work had important political results. It was thanks to him that a system of military colleges came into being, whose standard was so far above the general educational level that it drew, from among Arabs as well as Turks, many of the best brains of the coming generation. Of the men who were afterwards to play a part in the revolution which overthrew Hamid's tyranny, and in the Arab revolt a few years later, the graduates of those military colleges were the most prominent." So, yeah, so that was uh, the Young Turks came out of that. And the military mission was, naturally enough, instrumental in placing orders for arms and munitions with German firms. Probably Krupp was getting in on that. But its activities were not confined to its professed task. Some of its members, acting on orders issued by Bismarck himself, busied themselves with a variety of other interests and sent home periodical reports on conditions and prospects in Turkey, Then agents of financial houses appeared, to be followed by powerful banks intervening to secure first one concession, then another, for railways in Anatolia, so that between 1888 and 1896, the existing line from Haidar Pasha on the Asiatic shore of the Bosphorus was extended down to Konya. Meanwhile, the idea of exploiting Asia Minor had crystallized into a principle of realpolitik, sponsored by the German government, which included plans for the economic invasion of the the Ottoman Empire. It was part of those plans that a concession be sought for the construction of a railway to the Persian Gulf, and the Kaiser came in person to obtain it. In the autumn of 1898, after four or five years of diplomatic preparation, Wilhelm II arrived in Constantinople on a state visit to the Sultan, and succeeded in obtaining the desired concession, The Baghdad Railway was to be a continuation of the German-built line from Haidar Pasha to Konya, and was planned to skirt the southern fringe of Anatolia eastwards to Mosul, thus following almost exactly the racial boundary between Turks and Arabs, and then turning southwards to Baghdad to run down to Basra and reach its terminus somewhere in the Persian Gulf. Branch lines were contemplated at various points, including one to Alexandretta, so as to provide direct communication between the Mediterranean and the Persian Gulf. It was a bold and ambitious scheme and a menace to British interests in the East. It raised problems of a strategic as well as political and economic nature. To Germany, it would mean the acquisition of a great sphere of influence, rich in markets and raw materials, secure against the menace of sea power, pregnant with the promise of empire to Great Britain, the installation of a formidable competitor for her trade and a challenge to her supremacy in the Persian Gulf. From Constantinople, the Kaiser went to Jerusalem and on to Damascus to lay the foundations of the new edifice of German influence in Syria. During his tour, he took pains to stress and, as was usual with him, to overstress his benevolence to the Sultan and his sympathy for Islam and its caliph. In a speech he delivered in Damascus, he said, quote, His majesty the sultan and the 300 million Muslims who revere him as the caliph may rest assured that they will always have a friend in the German emperor. Then, with great ceremonial, he repaired to the tomb of Saladin, laid a wreath, and ordered that a silver lamp be made for the mausoleum yeah. as a personal gift from one of the Muslim heroes' fervent admirers. <laughs> These <Mom> gestures... <laughs> yeah, the, uh, <laughs> the Muslim hero. Yeah. These gestures were widely advertised, and the Kaiser returned to Berlin amidst the plaudits of the most inspired press in the Muslim world.
3: Uh, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. interesting. And in fact, Herzl, in that article we read last time, he mentions in his, like, you know, when... Uh, is that uh, Pasha, who I think we'll mention in a second? He, you know, asked about like you know, I need the you know the government needs like a million uh, pounds now, and Herzl's like, ah, the railway, you know, like I, you <laughs> in our old. That's like you know what he assumes they were talking about, but. There's a good, very relevant to everything that you've just been saying is uh, this uh, uh, passage on the uh, kind of uh, simmering tensions between that. I think uh, Antonius is very sensitive to between uh, Arabs and Turks. Right. uh, In this Mm -hmm. uh, book uh, by uh, Salim uh, Tamari. Uh, The Great War and the remaking of Palestine, which we may have mentioned before, but definitely has been on our reading list uh, for a while. But we haven't really quite gotten to the period that is relevant to uh, until now. But uh, this is a great chapter that called the Arabs, Turks and Monkeys, uh, the ethnography and cartography of Ottoman Syria. He starts off with this poem. You have now become one nation on Earth, Ottomans all, no different between Arabs and Ajam. No generations will divide you and no religions will come between you. Brothers together under our glorious constitution, joined together by the unionist banner flying high popular poem published in Beirut on the eve of the declaration of the 1908 constitution so we talked about this a fair amount last time how there was this kind of like jubilee of like fellow feeling after the young turk revolution and the new yeah. constant the reinstatement of the constitution that kind of didn't live up to its promise in many ways but
1: there was suspended by uh by abdul hamid right for well it was suspended
3: years. originally but then well, it was oh. it reinstated in the young turk revolution of 1909 that, yeah that's what i uh, mean like it was yeah. it was
1: or 1908. Yeah. Like unsuspended after yeah, yeah, yeah. like three um,
3: decades. Exactly. Well, yeah, and it was it was an effect for like a very, very short time originally. Yeah, so it was yeah. kind of like, yeah, this is sort of uh, you know, the first moment of hope. But yeah, he goes on. The monkeys in question were the Arab counselors of Sultan Abdul Hamid II. Ahmad Quadri, uh Khadri, the Arab physician who was a founder of the literary form in Istanbul in 1909. And later, in 1911, a founder of the Young Arab Society in Paris, records an episode in his Istanbul diary that uh, shook his faith in the continued unity of the Ottoman regime and its ability to maintain the loyalty of its Syrian and Arab subjects. He was taking an evening stroll in the imperial capital with his schoolmate and friend, Aouni Abdulhadi. days after the proclamation of the new constitution of 1908. The city was teeming with excited crowds discussing the dawning of the new liberties and the end of the Hamidian dictatorship. The two Arabs, a Damascan and an Abelusi, both of whom considered themselves loyal Ottoman citizens, came upon an agitated speaker attracting a large crowd. The speaker was a young charismatic officer by the name of Sari Bey, who was singing the praises of the new constitution to the crowds. Then he made a sudden turn and began attacking the supporters and lackeys of the old regime, using terms like the Arab traitor, Isat" and the Arab traitor, Abdul Huda. Oh. And again, this is like... The same guy who met with Herzl, right? The reference was to Azat Pasha al-Abed, the Sultan's private secretary, and Sheikh Abdul-Hadda al-Sedawi, a religious scholar who formed part of Abdul-Hamid's inner circle. It became customary in the oppositional press of Istanbul in this period to portray Hamid's Arab advisors as monkeys. Abdul-Hadi and Qadri berated the speaker. Why did you single out the Arab identity of Abdul-Hamid's men when there are far more Turks among the supporters of the old regime? It is quite likely that Kadri although not Abdul Hadi was also upset because he himself sympathized with the regime of Abdul Hamid Elsewhere, he notes how the uh, CUP overthrew the last sultan who conceived the Arabs as brothers in faith, inspiring Arab intellectuals to support an Ottoman patriotism, which had since disappeared. Over the next several months, he began to hear a revival of earlier derogatory epitaphs directed at Arabs, including such terms as uh, peace Arab, dirty Arabs, siya Arab, black Arabs, shinjin Arab, again, I don't speak Turkish at all, so I don't know, uh, Arab G-slur, um, Arab uh, Roma, but not that word, uh, oh, and uh, <laughs> Achilles uh, Arab stupid Arabs. Damn. Kadri reports that he was particularly hurt by these expressions because his father, Abdul Qadir Kadri, was an Amirale colonel, in the Ottoman army who had fought valiantly in the European provinces and was later appointed as a military commander in Balbec, Akka, and Basra. Both he and his father considered themselves pillars of a multinational Ottoman order. Khadri identifies this episode in the accompanying ethnic tension that emerged after the attempted coup of 1909 as a turning point in Arab relations with the Ottoman state. It led, in his view, to the determination of many active members of Arab literary societies in Istanbul to seek autonomy and then separation from Istanbul. So this is kind of an interesting difference from antonius's account where, like, it was the Turkish yoke that was like, you know, really the problem here when... This is a more nuanced picture of how, like, as we talked about last time, this new relationship of, like, center and periphery and, like, dirty Arabs and, like, civilizing great Turks really started to take hold with the yeah. Young Turk Revolution in a new way. Yeah, um,
1: it's, it, it's interesting because, like, Abdul Pasha, I think Antonius sort of says, like, says elsewhere that, you know, people like Itzat Pasha, who is Arab, um, and his other advisors, like, Abdul Hamid was so paranoid about arab revolt or you know breaking away from the ottomans and things like that that oftentimes if there was a kind of an up-and-coming very talented uh arab like intellectual or something he would invite him like he'd bring him in and pay him a bunch of money and bring him to istanbul and kind of keep an eye and then have his spies watch him all the time as opposed to like killing them or something which he did elsewhere like armenians but like so he did have this like clique of uh arabs around him that was probably out of a sense of maybe a little bit fueled by paranoia and like wanting to keep you know your friends close and your enemies closer kind of thing
3: yeah i mean maybe like partially probably because like i do like agree with the characterization of abdul hamid as certainly having like a problem with paranoia however i will like qualify that a little bit to say that like there was a certain level of like a multi ethnic character to the Ottoman state. And this is true of Armenians as well, right? And yeah, yeah. it definitely went awry in that case for sure, in a very like m- uh, memorable uh, and historically significant way that uh, we all are familiar with and that happened during this period uh, under the Young Turks. But the government did have that kind of uh, multi ethnic character in many ways. Right. And like, that's exactly what Kadri felt like betrayed by, right. Was the fact that like, actually like Arabs did historically participate and like, not to say that this was like, you know, this kind of like utopian, like rosy image of everything, but they did like participate in the governance, like of the state. So like, I think that I would say that someone <laughs> like Antonius and like, I think this will become clear, like reading from uh, Tamari a bit more like someone like kind of like back projects. Something that definitely did exist and definitely like intensified during this time during World War One for like very legitimate reasons, especially like, you know, the Arabs had valid grievances with the Ottomans, you know, not to say that like they didn't get like and Antonius to his credit says the same thing that they like got suckered as a result, you know, that they got suckered by the Europeans as a result and like betrayed. Them well, yeah, like um, l-
1: let's not forget, uh, you know, who was invited in there to uh train up and modernize you know the sultan's military. Uh, yeah, you those German military advisors, and you know, it certainly wasn't an intended consequence that they would all be kind of educated and have this western orientation and then be kind of a uh, organizationally competent enough to like overthrow him, but you know, that's exactly what what happened um, yeah so i mean, I mean that, that sense, like is is paranoia about like not wanting the army to be too strong like you see that in many different cases yeah in countries I mean, where they are quote unquote paranoid but there, yeah there's not, not no reason for it
3: i mean it goes back to like the placard issue like is it like good to like persecute like innocent armenians absolutely not uh or to like turn a blind eye to like mob violence like targeting minorities like absolutely not however you can see how you know where you have these placards saying like the indian remedy will soon be applied and the european powers like basically like as we see in that interview between Herzl or that you know uh rendezvous between Herzl and uh the italian king there basically was a plan to like partition the ottoman empire uh oh, that yeah was, like, yeah that like well, it's a vulture
1: know? circling the, yeah. the prey like they're just waiting for the right moment to come in but it's clearly happened it's happening over the course of like maybe a couple decades like leading up to world war one so everyone's kind of like the storm is on the horizon people can yeah. sense that so one one of these days it's gonna blow up and nobody knows it's, exactly how it's all gonna shake out but people are getting their ducks like in a row
3: like vibes you know where it's like how could he do this and it's like well it's like how could you say he was provoked and it's like well it doesn't justify like any, like, you know, atrocities or like aggressive actions taken. However, like, there is a context, you know? Like oh, yeah, yeah. And, and yeah.
1: sometimes, like, if somebody is kind of a, a bit of a bloody tyrant, like, part of the strategy of destabilizing them is to get them, is to provoke them with some kind exactly. of. Exactly. And then that be gets like, them to oh, overreact. the atrocities,
3: the Bulgarian horse, and like all this, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's very um, similar
1: to what the thing, like, maybe what happened to, like, Samuel Doe in Liberia, where there were constant encouragement and, like, most of them uh, nebulously probably backed by the CAA and then later, like, also the French and and others. But, you know, his reaction to, like, a bunch of guerrillas showing up, like, you know, in Liberian territory was just to, like, go into, like, certain counties that with, like, ethnic groups that he didn't trust and just, like, start slaughtering all the men and, like, killing people and, like, openly threatening them, which, of course, then alienated him from the entire... It it was, like, very uh, Gaza approach to like reacting to it and then the entire world was like what the fuck and then everyone and then the u.s conveniently could like turn their back on him because it's like wow you're committing atrocities but like they knew they put him into power in the first place they fucking knew he was gonna commit atrocities and like they could count on that that like we know his reaction is gonna be like brutal and fucked up and then i mean in that case like he was brutal and corrupt but uh that's just a it's a tactic that definitely um can be used so
3: yeah, it is interesting that uh, Qadri had a totally different image of, of Abdul Hamid because, you know, seeing him as like this the Sultan who conceived the Arabs as brothers in faith, right? Like totally mm-hmm. different from, right? Like, which is a- equally legitimate to Antonius's impression, right? He also like was very much like kind of like, I mean, he criticized them harshly, but he certainly had, uh, he certainly took a side in the like great game maneuverings. You know, he just was upset mm-hmm. that britain dropped the ball right because that was the other side of this like that the air revolt and that stuff was deliberately cultivated and you know like as well i think we'll get to like the sharif of Mecca's like revolt uh, you know all that um, famous stuff with t.e lawrence yeah lawrence, Ara- yeah, lawrence yeah. of arabia yeah yeah, yeah
1: exactly yeah the, this is we're getting to that period and i mean my god yeah like did they ever foment uh yeah, yeah. uh some, um, some rebellion going
3: on but yeah, this is an interesting kind of pivot in this uh, in this article here where he talks about kind of uh, a, a, sort of an intel document, you know, just to get a little bit to the sort of parapolitical elements mm-hmm. here. Uh, it's called a Philistine Risale, an astonishing document that disguises as much as it reveals. Ostensibly, a soldier's manual issued for limited distribution to the officers, uh, Hizmet uh, Makh uh, Susler, special services of the Eighth Army Corps, the handbook is basically a demographic and geographic survey of the province that constituted the southern flank for the theater of military operations during World War I. It contains statistical tables, topographic maps, and an ethnography of Palestine. But it also contains two outstanding features that highlight the manner in which Palestine and Syria were seen from Istanbul by the new Ottoman leadership after the Constitutional Revolution of 1908. The first is a general map of the country in which the boundaries extend far beyond the frontiers of uh, Mutasarriflik. Uh, Fleek, the Mutasar Fleek, I can't get over this L here, anyway, of Jerusalem, which was until then the stand or delineation of Palestine. The northern borders of this map include the city of Tyre, Sur, and the Lutani River, thus encompassing all of Galilee and parts of southern Lebanon, as well as the districts of Nablus, Haifa, and Akka, all of which were part of the Wilayat of Beirut until the end of the war. The second outstanding feature of the uh, manual is a population map that identifies the population of Palestine and coastal Syria by ethnic, communal, and religious identity. Yeah, uh, contrary to you were just showing me last night, like this insane screed you found somewhere about like this, like kind of like conspiracy theory. I guess. Oh, that, a, like, it, that was amazing. Yeah, yeah. and I think um, like I think it actually is using empty, and actually the Palestinians moved in after the Jews moved there. To kill this them. is a this is a great <laughs> like, this is like
1: the hottest like Zionist take that I think I've ever seen. It also it's using the pictures as evidence. It's, it's interesting because we talked about how I was at the Met and there was like this exhibit of I think it was a French photographer who took a ton of pictures in Egypt and Palestine and stuff in like the eighteen fifties. Yeah. And I think like the headline of the article has like one of the pictures that's in this exhibit. But the whole thrust of the article is that literally Palestinians like is it's made up it's a it's like a sign yeah. or an on top if you will like their entire existence is like made up and <laughs> these pictures yeah. from this photographer actually prove because like, look at all these pictures you don't see a single palestinian person, like,
0: walking around <laughs> yeah, blah, exactly. blah,
1: blah, blah. It's Like except for i it's guess like, like, like a few a few jews and maybe like a a, a bedouin here or there like basically it was co- all completely abandoned and then god what do they say that uh they, they said then,
3: that like after the jews moved in like a yeah. bunch of muslims from like other countries like came to i guess yeah. this uninhabited place like alaska mosque was like abandoned like uh-huh. because, because this guy took a picture of it where there's no one in the shot which is like fuck, put two and two together he didn't want anyone in the shot
1: yeah like, he's going for that yeah, yeah yeah
3: like but no apparently that like, but I mean, that's the exact type of mentality that people had. Like, those, you know, it's weird, like, though.
1: The the exact picture that he that, that I don't know, it's actually a he or she, but the exact picture that they use for the header actually does have people in it. It's like there's a group of like maybe they're Bedouins. It's not clear, like from a distance at one of the gates of Jerusalem. Like there's at le- there's like at least five or six people like in the shot, but they're still like, see, like nobody's there. Like, I guess because it's not a huge crowd or something like it's very bizarre but like I yeah they're basically know. yeah they they the muslims they went in um, <laughs> yeah. saudi arabia and syria and iraq like, and egypt yeah and then they like pretended they had lived there all along yeah just, just to, to,
3: yeah like they said like to kill them well it's very like reverse kill, victim and offender type of stuff like yeah Garbo. and like none of
1: them have deeds um, none of them can prove that they ever lived there I mean, yeah they, they don't, don't have that.
3: deeds. But um, really,
1: like a bold take. Um, yes, that yeah, like um, the whole thing was made. It's kind of like a new chronology thing of like literally it is. a whole it's, people. It's, yeah, it's like blood. Like
3: yeah, it's like Tartaria type stuff. <laughs> like yeah, it's all like a yeah. But anyway, it's kind
1: of like a it's got Khazar theory vibes of like they're not who they say they are. You know, like <laughs> yeah, they actually yeah, migrated yeah. from somewhere else and they like they're skinwalking some other culture, but it's not really that like. Yeah, uh, yeah. So yeah, uh,
3: one of the documents that was fabricated this massive conspiracy to suggest that uh, Palestinians existed uh, <laughs> was this one, uh, this you know intelligence report uh, from uh-huh. uh, World War Two. Uh, sorry, World War One. I. I keep doing that. World War I. Uh, Ottoman. The uh, Great
1: War. We can call the it Great
3: War. Yeah, exactly. Contrary to what would be expected in light of later developments, the populations of Syria and Southern Anatolia were divided not by nationality, linguistic grouping, or religious affiliation, but by a combination of putative national and sectarian identities. Southern Anatolia is divided among Turks, Turkmen, and a category of other Turks. Bilal Hashem is divided into Syrians, Suri, and Arabs east of the Jordan River. The rest of the population is made up of ethnic and religious minorities that overlap with these major national groupings, Maronites, Druze, Jews, Orthodox, Rum, Ismailis, uh, Metwalis, and Nusairis. Another category No love for the
1: Kurds? Well, I didn't the, wow. They, uh, I'm well, surprised. Nobody's, <laughs> yeah. bringing, nobody's bringing up what about the Kurds? I wonder like, I if they, they are... were the other Turks. Maybe. Uh, <laughs> Cuz Kurds sometimes have been like thought
3: of as mountain Turks. I mean, yeah, obviously. I mean, I I wouldn't expect like an Ottoman document to have like the, you know, the most of uh, PC representation of Kurds <laughs> <laughs> or treatment of Kurds. Anyway, but anyway, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> Philistine risale was introduced by the eighth army corps to its officers. In fact, I would almost think that other Turks might be a category we'll see. Maybe he addresses this, but maybe it might be a category designed to specifically avoid, like, you know, giving any quarter to like a Kurdish identity. But anyway. The Eighth Army, for much of its history, was dominated by uh, Mersinli uh, Kemal Pasha, who, in addition, succeeded uh, Ahmad Kemal Pasha in the leadership of the Fourth Army after the routing of the Ottoman forces in Suez. Well, like I want to read some like uh, you know firsthand accounts of that, maybe in the next mm-hmm. uh, installment uh, of this, because we're kind of running low on time. But in the many ways, the history of in many ways, the history of Palestine and Syria during the war years was dominated by these two figures. The first for his relentless war against Arab nationalists, and the second for his attempt to rectify the damage to Arab-Turkish relationships brought about by Ahmad Kamel's campaign of terror, quote-unquote. The Ottoman forces in Palestine were also led by three German generals who were attached to the Ottoman command. Friedrich Kreis von Kresenstein commanded the 8th <laughs> Army in okay. 1917. I mean, I know I'm just laughing at somebody's name, but like, I mean, I just have such a clear picture of Friedrich Kreis von Kresenstein in my mind. That Every like German of ours von. Uh, it's just, it's just very up. like, yeah, it's like, anyway. Otto Lehman von Saunders, a relative of Bernie, I guess, uh, was commander of the 1st Army at Gallipoli. Uh, Otto Lehmann von Sanders is our only chance at socialism. <laughs> like, we have a chance to step the door if we're willing to do it. Um, oh. The formation of the Yildirim Army Group in May 1917. But uh, sorry, I'm getting it's like late, so I'm getting a little bit like loopy here. Uh, the formation of the Yildirim Army Group in May 1917 by the merger of the Fourth, Seventh, and Eighth Armies as well as a German-Asia group, was meant to save the situation in Palestine from defeat. The new Sa'ika formation, uh, Yildirim, or Thunderbolt in English, was led by Eric von Falkenhayn and Otto von Saunders. Oh it was my Mustafa, God! Go uh, Kamal, another yeah, another uh, Arab hater whose name is Mustafa, who withdrew the uh, Yildirim forces from southern Palestine when the front began to collapse. Ahmad Kamal took over the... Uh, I think it's... Sorry, I'm saying Kamal. It's probably Jamal. I think, with yeah, yeah, I
1: think, yeah, it it is,
3: it's, you know, I don't, oh, I never, I always forget that the, the C's are, are J's and, um, or gems and, and, uh, Turkish anyway. Yeah. So Ahmad Jamal took over the command of the fourth army from Zeki Pasha, Halepi in November 1914 and established his headquarters in Damascus, moving, uh, in 1915 to Jerusalem's Mount of Olives. He had already established a name for himself in the new political military elite before coming to Palestine. His name began to sparkle after the 1909 rebellion, when he joined the Action Army to suppress the Hamidian Restoration Movement. As governor of Adana, he was put in charge of suppressing Armenian revolts, quote-unquote, in the region. In 1911, he was appointed governor of Baghdad, again, to deal with Arab tribal rebellions. He later joined the Ottoman troops in the Balkan War and was promoted to colonel. In 1913, he was among the inner leadership of the Young Turks who brought the CUP to power in the January coup d'etat. He was appointed governor of istanbul where he engaged in an action to suppress opposition to the ruling party just before the war am i oh man i realize i've been unplugged this or am i yeah i'm unplugged this whole time uh, uh from what from your from mic, mic yeah oh
1: shit doesn't sound yeah. like that,
3: Interesting. well uh, Pretty, and it kind of brings up a lot of the things that you uh, were just uh, mentioning so he later joined the ottoman troops in the balkan Wars was a colonel in 1913 he was among the inner leadership of the young turks who brought the cup to power in the january coup d'etat he's important appointed governor of istanbul where he engaged in an action to suppress the opposition to the ruling party i read all this but anyway now we're back to where we were just before the <laughs> war he was promoted to the rank of general and appointed minister of the navy a position that he kept for much of his remaining political career. Before the war, Jamal was known for his pro-French sympathies. He held a number of talks with the French and sought an alliance with them on behalf of the CUP government, but was eventually forced to join Enver Pasha and Talat Pasha in concluding the Ottoman-German alliance. It's pretty interesting, right, you know, uh, there, but for, you know, uh, Allah's called her. <laughs> it was soon after the proclamation of war in November 1914 that Jamal was appointed head of the Fourth Army in Syria. He already had a reputation as an Arab hand after suppressing the tribal rebellions in Iraq. When he arrived in Damascus, he was greeted enthusiastically by the Syrians. Ahmad Qadri, a leader of the Al-Arabia al Fatah, the Young Arab Movement, and a medical officer in the Fourth Army, has described the progression of uh, Jamal's relations with the Arabs. He quotes his maiden speech in Damascus on the plaza of the Umayyad Mosque. There is no conflict between the Turks and the Arabs in the struggle. We either win together or fail together. However, a series of events during the war led to the deterioration of his and the CUP's relations with the local population and the start uh, of the campaign of repression against the nationalists. This crucial factor was the the failure of the second Suez campaign and uh, Jamal's perception of the Syrian soldiers as being responsible for that. Classic stab-in-the-back issue. Yeah, but here we go. The two direct issues were his interception of secessionist propaganda circulated by the Ottoman Decentralization Party, headquartered in Cairo, and news that Sharif Hussein was already negotiating an agreement with the British behind his back. There were several interventions by Prince Faisal, along with Enver and with Talat Pasha, which seemed to have improved the relations with Jamal, but only temporarily. One factor in these vacillations was the fact that within the CUP, there were several factions vying for power, not always coordinating with each other. This became clear before and during the war with the formation of the Teskelet uh, Masusa, special forces in 1911 under the command of Enver Pasha, originally to fight the Italian occupation of Libya. The Teskelet Masusa evolved in 1913 as an intelligence unit answerable only to the Ministry of War. And designed to combat separatist movements in the empire, so you can really see how this like Turkish deep state is really percolating during this time. Oh yeah, you know yeah, this is like cutting the, their teeth. Yeah, this is like the uh, inception of the Turkish deep state as we know it. Of course, like there's mm-hmm. always been secret societies and things like that, but mm-hmm. during the war years, each member of the CUP triumvirate, Enver, Talat, and Ahmad Jamal, had his own personal i uh, masusa. Jamal, in particular, used his security apparatus to combat both the Arab separatists and internal dissent in Syria and Palestine. But he also tried to create a loyalist circle of supporters. These included Esad al-Ushukairi, the Mufti of Aqqa, Prince Shaqib Arsalan, Sheikh Abdul Aziz Shawish, head of the Salahiyah College, and Abdul Rahman uh, al-Yusuf, uh, the director of the Hajj organization, Emirat al-Hajj. Mm -hmm. Their work was exemplified in initiating a campaign of Islamic mobilization for the war while justifying the repression of dissent against the war and against secessionist sentiments. In his campaign for Islamic mobilization, Jamal received full support from the CUP leadership and from the Germans, who carried out their own campaign of jihadist activities.
1: Wow. Okay.
3: Yeah, Jihad Made in Germany by Tilman Ludke is a thorough record of Germany's disingenuous role in this campaign, showing a zeal among the Germans that far exceeded the intentions of Ottoman leadership. Interesting. Uh maybe we should we should this check that book like out. It,
1: yeah. Yeah, it's like it's almost it's flipped to like that but with Zionism today, like mm-hmm. where they're even more hardcore. Like they're so eager to prove how hardcore they are. It's yeah, it's very um,
3: interesting. I was definitely uh more here on uh, Ahmad Jamal. I mean, this, sh- this last part's pretty short, so I might as well read it before we get into some more about Philistine Uh yeah, yeah. But in the anti-Arabist campaign, it seems that Jamal was on his own, and in a number of instances he differed with Enver and Talat. Muhammad Izzad uh, Darweze cites from the diary of Aziz Baik, head of the Ottoman intelligence in Damascus during the war years, to emphasize this deviation. He explains that the vehemence of Jamal's campaign against the Arab wing of the decentralization party which, in program and action, was far from advocating a separation of the Arab provinces from Istanbul, is attributable to the latter's alliance with the mainly Turkish Party of Freedom and Reconciliation, Huriyat wa Itilaf, while the latter conducted a briefly successful coup against the CUP government. When the Unionists succeeded in restoring their rule, Jamal commenced his campaign against the autonomous movements and against what he saw as the seeds of Arab separatism in particular. Ahmed Jamal's military dictatorship of Syria had a lasting impact on the population's relationship with Istanbul. Hassan Kayali, who examined the internal documents of the CUP leadership, also suggests that Jamal's more extreme measures against the nationalist movement, including the Beirut-Damascus executions and the massive deportation of hostile elements from the coastal region of Anatolia, were not necessarily supported by the CUP leadership. In particular, he suggested the Turkification campaign instituted by Jamal in state schools and higher higher colleges in Palestine and Syria was a reflection of the centralizing and modernizing features of a new regime and was not particularly directed at Syrian and Arab nationalism. Widespread rumors also claim that Jamal was secretly negotiating a special status for the Arab provinces in a future Anatolian-Syrian federation. Nevertheless, the damage engendered by Jamal's systematic campaign of repression was too extensive to mitigate. It brought about a rupture with the Ottoman regime in which the Syrian population began to associate natural disasters, famine, diseases and the locust attack. We're going to get to the year of the locust. It's a great book with that title. Uh, Uh Like it's kind of like a Ken Burns type thing. It has like diaries of Ottoman soldiers from this time. And like it's very interesting with the policies of Jamal and through him with the central government. When eventually in September 1917, Ahmad Jamal resigned from his post at the Southern Front, the opportunity arose to have him replaced by Mersinli Jamal Pasha as head of the 4th Army. The latter also commanded the 8th Army Corps and fought in Palestine, Syria, and Transjordan until the end of the war. Thus, when Philistine Resele was published, Mersinli was in command. But since we do not know who commissioned it and when, it could very well have the imprint of von Falkenhayn, von Saunders, <laughs> and Ahmad Jamal Pasha on it. Then he kind of talks about this section is titled Country Manual or Intelligence Report. As a military handbook, Philistine Rissele, sorry, uh, Rissele, I've been like kind of weaving at the S again turkish having some problems what is that turkish. what does that translate to missive uh palestine like palestine missive i assume this is the same as the arab word versella which can be like any number of things like uh epistle uh essay okay. you know treatise but yeah basically like epistle on on palestine or missive on palestine can be compared sub-stack to stack post yeah substack post on Palestine. <laughs> a report maybe we could say report okay. in this case can be compared to two genres of country surveys The first group are those military manuals issued by allied forces during the war to help their officers manage their movements in enemy territory in the Syrian provinces. The second group of surveys is composed of Holy Land travel books. This is, you know, kind of this interesting dimension that we talked about a little bit before, like the Ottoman Mm -hmm. kind of sensitivity to this meant to acquaint pilgrims and visitors with the ways and manners of the Orient. A good example of the first genre is a handbook of Syria, including Palestine, issued first by British Naval Intelligence in 1915 and then reissued annually after the British conquest of Syria and Palestine. Another is Harry Luke and Edward Keith Roach's handbook of Palestine issued on the eve of the mandate. Luke later became deputy governor of Jerusalem immediately after the British occupation of Palestine. Both books contain basic historical, geographic, and demographic data, as well as maps and diagrams of the country. The latter, in addition, contains practical information about transport, prices, and health precautions about the country, since it also targets the civilian visitor. But the ethnographic map is unique to Philistine Risalesi. In the second genre, Holy Land Travel Books, we have two sources that seem to have lent themselves to the authors of Philistine Risalesi, especially in the section on population types. One is Antonin Jowson's Costumes des Arabes uh, al de Moab. <laughs> Costumes des Arabes. Yeah, <laughs> Costumes yeah. des Arabes. Uh, and the other is Harry Luke's Handbook mentioned above. In terms of his ethnic-slash-political assessment of the local populations, Philistine Resalesi also has a British equivalent for Palestine. This is a series of intelligence reports prepared by the British Army in Egypt during the war years. Those include the economic and political situation west of the jordan prepared by the war office 1918 and intelligence reports prepared by the admiralty in cairo musin mohammed asale who made an extensive survey of these intelligence reports has concluded that the palestinians were divided in their sentiments about the approaching allied troops but that there was nevertheless considerable resp- support for the ottomans even in the final days of the war To the extent that people welcome British occupation of Palestine, their support was based largely on the alliance the British had with the forces of Sharif Hussein and with the Syrian nationalists. And on the promise to create a united Arab kingdom after the war that would include the southern Syrian districts, i.e. Palestine. This is kind of Antonius's like, you know, big issue, right? Like there were promises that were there was a, a policy of deceit, if you will. Yeah. Although the Ottoman and British assessments contained in the Philistine a uh, treatise on Palestine along with the War Office reports on the local population were meant to serve military purposes orientation for soldiers and intelligence assessments during a time of war including assessments of the potential loyalty and hostility of the natives, there are clear differences between the Ottoman and British assessments. Unlike the British reports however, Philistine, Uh, was written in the manner of a monograph on a local population clearly seen as Ottoman subjects and not as a foreign population. For example, the survey of the population mapped out in Palestine contained observations about local minorities and groups that existed in various configurations in all of Syria and large parts of Anatolia. Still, these surveys in Philistine risalesi are largely focused on geographic and demographic data that mirrors data found in European handbooks on Palestine. The topographic part relies on data that can be found in Holy Land surveys and uses the language and references that are common in these handbooks, including many biblical references to holy places. The survey of Palestinian history, in particular, relies on an eclectic reading of main events, Canaanite, Philistine, Hebrew, Babylonian, Arab, and Islamic conquests. It is striking that either the word conquest or occupation, it is used in reference to virtually all of these regimes including the Ottoman conquest of Palestine by Sultan Salim in 1517. The only exception hmm. is a reference to the liberation, Tahrir, of the Holy Land by Salah ad din in uh, 1187. So there you go. You know, Salah reputation, you know. Uh, He's the only one. Yeah. yeah. Kingdom of heaven.
0: That's pretty, Yeah. Admired that's
3: pretty. even by the, the Germans. In the religious wow. communities of Palestine, the author focuses on the various minorities, Druze, Jews, various Christians, Matawaleh uh, and Nusari'in, in great detail. The minorities of Syria were included in the discussion of Palestine. Jews are divided into native, Arabic-speaking Jews, and Eastern European immigrants, who spoke Yiddish in their native tongues. The military aspect of this document becomes clear, however, when discussing the topography of the country, the two central themes of the accessibility of the road networks and the presence of water sources for the armed forces. And exa- for example, locations that contain sufficient resources for sustaining an army division, Firkat, are listed in the, f- the vicinity of uh, Yazor, Wadi Hanin, uh, Ybnah, Izdud, Majda, and Gaza. Uh, in the mm. north, that is Gaza. Uh, you know, they uh, this author spelled it in the sort of properly transliterated way. It's weird to me that we spell, but I guess like it's G-H. like Al Sally. Yeah uh i
1: notice everyone says gaza like but then it's yeah. never spelled that way in english yeah it's
3: yeah. weird it's kind of like it's like al Khazali, how we leave out the other z from his name that's another thing is there's two z's too there should be but it's even worse than al Khazali because like we don't even do the ugh. i guess we should gaza. but i'm probably going to keep yeah. saying gaza just so people know what i'm talking about but i don't know yeah, yeah. yeah. it's kind of like you know are we going to say peri i mean i do use try to use the right pronunciation in some cases but we'll consider it. In the north, the authors (laughs) list uh, Arara and uh, uh, Lajun. In the center, they list uh, Tolkarem and Der Sharef as containing enough water for an army corps uh, liwe. The Jerusalem region is listed as very poor in water resources and to be avoided. Road conditions are also given detailed attention. The main access roads usable for mechanized army divisions are listed in the Haifa-Nazareth Road and the Tolkarem-Nablus Road and the Jaffa-Jerusalem Road. Other roads, such as Zaita, uh, Arabe, and Janin, are listed as usable except for animal-driven units only. Yet another list is given for roads that are strategic but impassable for mechanized divisions, such as the Safad Road. Latrun and Nebi Samuel are listed as places for panoramic surveillance. Updated notations are given for roads that are being constructed or upgraded, such as the Julius-Latrun roads and the Jaffa-Jerusalem roads, where 17 military outposts were constructed by uh, Theraya Pasha, the Mutasarif, principal governor, of Jerusalem, or provincial governor, sorry. By contrast, the British War Office reports lack the ethnographic and topographic mapping that we find in the Ottoman documents. The central criteria for assessing the Palestinian region here was a degree of reliability of the local population and receptivity to the British presence. 100 villages were surveyed in terms described as very friendly, friendly, mixed, not friendly, and hostile. Some townships, such as Kalkadeh and Safuria, were singled out as fanatical and hostile. <laughs> Despite a tendency in these reports to portray the Christian population as being more friendly, there were nevertheless significant exceptions. The populations of Akka, Tabaria, Tiberias, uh, Afula, which was largely Jewish, were described as unreliable and, in the case of Akka, hostile, possibly because Akka politics were dominated by the Ottoman loyalist Sheikh Assad Shukeri. Nazareth, Haifa, uh, Anapta and Kufakana were seen as friendly or very friendly. Much of the report is also preoccupied with describing social groups, families, and even individual leaders in terms of their political affinities and loyalties. Nablus, like Akka, was singled out as a city of pro-Ottoman sentiments and hostility toward the British. Among those whom the report named were Ashror, Tukhan, Fakhum from Nazareth, Abbas, and Abu Hamad families. Among the pro-British families were listed uh, Hijawi, Abdu'l-Hadi, and Adari. The Abdu'l-Hadis were described as influential, moderate in their views, and astute, but also as ruthless towards their peasants, by whom they are hated. Both Haifa (laughs) and Janine are portrayed as anti-Turkish cities, the latter mainly owing to the support of the Arab rebellions after the execution of Salim Abdu'l-Hadi, the brother of Janine's governor, by Ahmad Jamal Pasha in 1915. Musin Saleh correctly suggests that many of these assessments were based on intelligence reports from local agents and therefore were not reliable. More likely, however, is that they were based on immediate temporal assessments during wartime activities. Saleh quotes Nablus historian Isan al-Namir, who himself came from a prominent Nablus family, for a different perspective. Namir attributes much of anti-Turkish sentiments in Syria and Palestine during the war to the mistaken policies of Jamal Pasha. He gives credit to the local population for pressuring the Ottoman command to have him transferred to the Caucasus. And Mir also cites a number of meetings that took place in Nablus with the Ottoman commander Fawzi Pasha, who denounced the Palestinian in the terms of the Sykes-Picot Agreement and the Balfour Declaration. Several pro-Ottoman demonstrations took place in Nablus after these meetings. After the appointment of Mur, uh, uh, Sinlik Jamal as commander of the Fourth Army, the local Palestinians began to cooperate closely with the Turkish command. Namir noted after the conditions of the Balfour Declaration and the Sykes-Picot Agreement became known, several hundred people from the Nablus region volunteered to fight with the Ottoman troops. He then adds a significant note. It was this factor, i.e. opposition to Western colonial rule, and not any sympathy for the Arab Rebellion, which was hardly felt in Nablus, that moved people to fight against the British. Thus, even though both his reports, the Ottoman and the British, tend to contain background demographic assessments of Palestine, and both are meant to serve military intelligence objectives, they nevertheless diverge in the primacy of the intelligence function in the case of the War Office reports. Philistine risalesi by contrast, presents us with an elaborate monograph on social and ethnographic conditions in the province of Palestine, similar in scope to that of regional Salnames, or to uh, Beirut uh, Vilayeti in the uh, study commissioned by the local administration to record the social conditions of the Beirut province, authored by Muhammad Bajet and Rafiq Tamimi. So, yeah, there you go. You get a kind of a, a picture here of kind of a, a different image of what was going on, like, at the time than some of the historiography uh, represents uh, to be the case. No,
1: but, okay, so, like, the these different intelligence reports uh, from the different powers kind of, yeah, elucidate uh, their intentions on the region, right?
3: Yeah, they definitely like reflect it. And also, like, yeah, the reports like show these different intentions for sure, but also they kind of uh, reflect, yeah, not only these kind of different intentions, but different like orientations. And that, as we were kind of talking about from like Anthonius this kind of like image of you know like uh, strong like anti-turkish sentiment while certainly present and in many cases legitimate uh, and we'll see like some like for i think like a primary source or like you know firsthand account examples of this as we, yeah. as we go on like it's a, a little bit like more complex than that i see it, yeah. it's a
1: good point that uh, yeah i guess in in certain regions people were willing to kind of sign up with the Ottoman army. Once the Sykes-Picot agreement became public and they viewed the potential of Western colonialism as a greater immediate threat, right?
3: Yes. Yeah, they, they definitely, especially once the terms of the Balfour declaration and the Sykes-Picot agreement became like widely known, right? Yeah. On the so this one is hand, slightly
1: contra the, the Lawrence of Arabia um, <laughs> way of telling yes. the story where it's like, they all just wanted to be free and we're willing to accept British help. Yeah. But then, like, they couldn't agree with each other, and that's why, like, I think that's literally the end of the movie. Yeah. uh, Like, geez, these Arabs just can't agree on anything. Like, too bad. I guess we have to colonize them. Like. Yeah, it's a little different than
3: that. This, this portion kind of, like, you know, sums it up, like, in a, in a useful way that uh, might make it, it clear. But the Ottoman imperial regime viewed Palestine in ethnic terms as part of the Shammi Syrian territories, which included at the turn of the century the provinces of Beirut, Syria, and the Mustasariflik uh, of Jerusalem. In administrative terms, the word Palestine was used on Ottoman maps of the period as equivalent to the Kudus Sharif, Mustasariflik, uh, that is, like, you know, the, uh, like, Jerusalem. In uh, narrative reports, however, Philistine was an amorphous term equivalent to Holy Land and often extended beyond to the boundaries of the governorship, especially in its northern expanses. Being the land of the Haram al-Sharif, as well as of Christian and Jewish holy places, however, added a special status to Palestine, which was augmented by the increasing presence of pilgrims from Europe, mostly Christians and Jews, and from North Africa and India, mostly Muslims. In Philistine Risadesi, the number of Palestinians assessed as around, uh, is assessed as around uh, 700,000 in uh, 1331, that is, 1915, which indicates that the uh, anonymous authors of the treatise have added the districts of Acre and Nablus to the government of Jerusalem in their calculation. Here we encounter two striking conceptions of native ethnicities. In the narrative descriptions of the peoples of the Holy Land under the heading population, the natives are represented as a mixture of Muslims, Christians, and Jews of various Saxon denom- denominations. In the ethnographic map that accompanies the text, however, the population becomes an amalgamation of broad nationalities that dominate the scene, and pockets of overlapping sects, as well as ethno-religious groupings that overlap with the nationalities. The map covers the bulk of the Syrian coast and southern Anatolia. The national groups are divided into Turks, Turkmen, Arabs, and Syrians. The Syrian population covers all of the Palestinian highlands, Mount Lebanon, and the settled population of the Transjordan. And all of the Syrian coast, up in th- including Iskandarun. The Arabs are the population east of Homs, Hamat, and Damascus, and south of Gaza. Intri- equally intriguing in this map is the distinction between Turks and Turkmen. Turks are the settled sort of population of western Anatolia. Turkmen is the term used for the population living in the area roughly around Sivas and eastward. These major divisions of the population of the Ottoman Levant and the Turks, Turkmen, Arabs, and Syrians and then interspersed with pockets of Druze, Ismailis, Jews, Maronites, Nusaris, methwalis and Rum Greek Orthodox. How should we interpret these divisions? Contrary to the common perception, the new Ottoman leadership did not divide the population of Anatolia and the Syrian coast into Arabs and Turks. Rather, it assumed that the entire subject population belonged to the category of Ottoman citizens. The ethnic division was likely made in the perception of ethnicity and distinguished between settled populations, Syrians and Turks on one hand, and tribal and semi-tribal populations, Turkmen and quote-unquote other Turks on the other hand, who required a different (laughs) military strategy. (laughs) Ottoman discourse on nationalism and ethnicity had preoccupied debates in the Ottoman press, both in Istanbul and in the Arab provinces after the Constitutional Revolution. Within Syria and Palestine, the rising tide of nationalism became focused on issues of language and the use of Arabic in school curricula, as well as in official correspondence. Uh, Unpublished war diaries indicate that soldiers and civilians were acutely aware of the identity of local governors and military commanders. Uh, Arnayuti, Albanian, Suri, Hejazi, Bulgari, Turki, Bushnaki, Bosnian, were common Mm -hmm. distinctions, although not necessarily implying negative distinctions. As the war progressed, however, the usage of phrases oppressive Turks and Ottoman yoke were increasingly heard, even though they did not mean the same thing, since the protesters identified themselves as Ottoman citizens. The view from the imperial center, however, was different. In her review of the Ottoman revolutionary press, Palmyra Brumet throws significant light on ethnic stereotyping in the waning years of Ottoman rule. Only the Greeks, Bulgarians, and Albanians were cast in ethnic political caricatures, mostly through dress. Arabs were cast negatively only when the circle around Abdul Hamid's corrupt advisors, the quote-unquote monkeys, was associated with the old reactionary order. Otherwise, the Arabs were often seen as the victims of Italian and British imperialism in Libya and Egypt, struggling to free themselves and presumably to restore Ottoman rule. The situation changed drastically after the Arab rebellion of Sharif Hussein in Hijaz in 1916, when Ahmad Jamal Pasha and his publicist Faleh Rifki began to talk about the Arab betrayal and the stab in the back. Wow, well, I didn't even remember. Wow, wow. He they, said they came in up those with exact it first. Terms. Yeah. Wow. A uh, distinction continued to be made, however, between Syrians and Arabs, especially when Syrian soldiers had fought valiantly in the defense of Anatolia and Janakala and Gallipoli. Janakela, Turkish uh, Kanakele, and Gallipoli, located at the entrance of the Dar, uh, Dardanay Straits, were two major battle sites during World War I. Both Brummett and Kayali note that distinctions within the press were made on the basis of regional rather than ethnic affinities. In examining satirical cartoons, uh, Brummett notes, other than in the anti-imperialist form, uh, the Arab is a bit hard to find these Ottoman cartoons. He does not appear as a rabid separatist demanding an Arab nation from the new regime, he does not appear as he will in the later era in the West as a catch-all symbol of terrorism and trouble. Indeed, one can scan hundreds of Ottoman cartoons without finding a figure who can be irrevocably tagged as Arab. For that matter, one can scan hundreds of cartoons without finding a figure tagged as a Turk, except where Turk stands for a synonym, stands as a synonym for Ottoman in general, and particularly for an Ottoman as distinct from a European. But within mm-hmm. a few years during the war, this identification of the Ottoman with the Turk started a process of differentiations and exclusions that led to the delegitimization of the term Ottoman as an all inclusive concept. So
1: Interesting. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I get the disintegration. So they end up basically liquidating the very concept of like Ottoman identity.
3: Yeah. It uh broke (laughs) down these
1: modernizers.
3: It broke down amidst the pressures of the intrigues that took place, especially, you know, the, the Arab Revolt. Um, mm-hmm. right? like uh, this caused like distrust, and especially like uh Ahmad Jamal was like a major contributor to it, who I'm sure like antonius mentions as like a bad guy.
1: I think he does. Yeah, 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 he's not a big fan. Uh, but it it is interesting how, yeah, like people were rebelling against the, quote, the, like it's an interesting thing, like they're rebelling against the Ottoman government, like the young Turk leadership. But they're rebelling like as Ottomans who are having their identity liquidated kind of thing. And I think yeah. sometimes maybe that that could be sort of overlooked or oversimplified. And like they just were like again they wanted to throw out the whole Ottoman thing. It's sort of like, I don't know, if like people in the late 80s were like protesting against like Gorbachev in the Soviet Union, it didn't necessarily mean that they like wanted to overthrow the Soviet system, but because like Gorbachev was allegedly sort of betraying, like, the Soviet system by, like, doing what he was doing, so... But then it's easy to, like, kind of look at it from the outside, especially when it benefits, like, say, the West uh, and be like, look, they're marching for freedom. Like, yes. you know, basically like, every one of them is like Alexander Solzhenitsyn, basically. <laughs> yeah. Not necessarily yeah, exactly. the case. Or like yeah, the recent,
3: yeah. like, Iran protests that we saw where it's like, people were just, like, yeah. they are saying this to the dictator. They want an end to this yeah. theocracy and they want the shot to come back. You know, like, based on, like, <laughs> what your ideology is, like, it's like, oh, I can read this. Like, whatever, you know. Yeah,
1: you could super hype it up, like, super hard. Exactly. Yes.
3: But uh, like Philistine Rissilesi shows that their like this, you know, intelligence report in the way that it like uh, talks about uh, Palestinians and Arabs and the way that like it thinks about them. It shows that they see it as like part of their empire and that it you know, there isn't like a dissociation that did like take hold. And that there actually were potentialities like in a different direction, or some forces that were pushing it in one way. But ultimately, there were attempts to course correct like on both sides, but it, Mm -hmm. you know, ultimately kind of, you know, fell apart, you know, for. Yeah.
1: yeah. Like Antonius talks about, there are a number of secret societies in sort of the Arab world that had varying degrees of influence, but some of them were quite influential. And I think one of them had the idea of almost setting up this uh, dual monarchy kind of Austria-Hungary solution where like the sultan would still be, this might have been a little bit before the Young Turk Revolution, but they had this idea of like the the sultan would still rule over the entire empire the way that the, uh, you know, Austro-Hungarian emperor Mm -hmm. is like the king of Austria and the king of Hungary. But, like, there would be this kind of uh, confederation thing th- th- to rise the Arabs to a level of, like, partner status. But they'd still be under, like, the same Ottoman system.
3: Yeah, like, that kind of reminds me of, like, Herzl's plan for Israel, the way he pitched it to yeah uh- <laughs> the sultan that like they would still be like under the sort of general jurisdiction of, of the Ottomans,
1: but that's right. Yeah. That was his kind of idea of like, you let me move there and buy all the land. Then I'll still like technically kind of tip my hat to you as, as the sovereign, but like we can run our own affairs. I mean, this is a very, you know, very chaotic influx kind of era where a lot of different things were changing um, and having perhaps like consequences that people didn't realize. Like, I don't know, like introducing liberal parliamentary democracy in the Austro-Hungarian Empire led to a bunch of like Geert Wilder, like anti-Semite, you know, populists, uh like getting elected uh, into office. And it's funny, it's like really, I don't know, kind of with the EU, like ain't nothing new. And then here trying to experiment with like how to sort of maintain like the exoskeleton of the Ottoman Empire, but like modernize it without it all kind of exploding and uh which ultimately like yeah they they kind of crashed the ship onto the rocks there uh the young turks eventually yeah they definitely uh,
3: did i mean there were like you know again like there were there were different like factions within the cup that like maybe had like a better vision for things and like there was this kind of potential as we were saying last time but you know this like, perception of, like, the stab in the back around uh, that revolt that, like, really apparently, like, got to Ahmad Jamal in particular was devastating, you know, or a huge blow. And is this
1: the revolt that was dramatized in Lawrence of Arabia?
3: Yes, yes.
1: Okay, okay. Uh, so this is movie, in the territory uh, of Saudi Arabia.
3: Did you ever see the movie Thebe? It came out, like, a couple years ago, or probably no. I'm saying a couple, but, like, uh, it's a good movie. It's, like, a Bedouin western. And yeah, the railway like plays a role in in the film. Yeah, it's set in 1916. Actually, I recommend the movie Thebe. It was shot in Jordan.
1: Oh, okay, interesting. I think it was the first.
3: I think it was the first like Jordanian movie to like win an Oscar or be nominated for an Oscar. Yeah, uh, it's nominated for best foreign language film. The first Jordanian nomination ever. Yeah, it's a good
1: movie. Okay. And it has to do with like a lot
3: of this stuff. you know, that we're talking, this is the same context that we're talking about now.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Yeah. so I'm looking yeah. here. So that, did that happen in 1915 or 16? This is memorable. like
3: 1915 that we're we're talking about
1: okay. now, yeah. Yeah, so on the Sharif of Mecca, yeah, I'm looking at Antonius' chapter about him. Which, yeah, oh yeah, okay. You're talking about slanted. like when
3: the Arab Revolt happened. That that was in 1916. Yeah, I'm just yeah. placing it within the, the broader context of thing, uh, yeah. of
1: World War One, uh, which we still can't, which uh, due to our education was mystified to us. So how do we even describe how the <laughs> how World War One began? Um, I mean, did oh, it did, yeah, like it did generally,
3: technically? How, are we gonna talk about like the causes of World War One? Well, um, I mean, I we
1: I, maybe yeah. for maybe for a second, it is interesting that you know it did start in the formerly. Kind of conquered province of Bosnia Herzegovina yeah. um, in Sarajevo, where uh, a Gavrili Princip, you know, killed Archduke Ferdinand. Now, I think that in 1908, Austria Hungary had annexed Bosnia Herzegovina from the Ottomans, and then yeah. there really were a series of just constant L's in the decade leading up to World War I where they basically they lost uh, most of their territory in Libya they then Bulgaria seceded from them and then there were the Balkan Wars in yeah. I think 19 I want to say 1912 right before the wars. so basically I think besides eastern Thrace was like a tiny little piece of territory that was their last territory in Europe that they still had control over by the time World War I started yeah. so there are, you know, the other powers are already nibbling away at, mm-hmm. you know, the Ottoman dominion, basically. And they're mostly, you know, they've mostly lost North Africa. They've pretty much lost most of the European foothold. Then World War I starts, obviously, they are on uh, the German side, you know, because of uh, this is sort of the start of a very strong relationship between Germany and Turkey that, you know, even persists to this day. Yeah, and, and uh, I kind it,
3: of had some existence before that as well. I think that like there was a lot of German interest in uh like Ottoman domains, especially like German orientalism. It's an interesting topic because it's kinda of something that's kinda of, like left out of like I think as Saeed, you know, we read a little bit from his book, like as he kind of mentions and acknowledges himself, he kind of under discussed German orientalism. Um, I think because there was a perception that, like, Germany didn't have, like, colonial designs or, like, definite, like, colonial context for its Orientalism in the same way that, like, French Orientalism did, as, like, the passages that you just, like, read from Antonius, like, show, like, it's not true at all, but, Mm -hmm. you know, especially later on, but yeah, like, German Orientalism was like, very interesting and this actually kind of does tie into there is a huge crossover between people who are like uh who would be arabists or who would study you know like islamic languages or study islam people like george jacob or uh noldke the Mm -hmm. famous like uh quranic scholar orientalist and they like this idea of like a german heritage in the orient and particularly like in india right like Uh, uh, among the aryans was like mm-hmm. really popular among those people and like I part see. of like the study of the orient which was like or of a german orientalism which was like so heavily bound up with you know the orient was kind of all conflated together you know it wasn't like you <laughs> we were just a specialist in. i mean obviously people did specialize but that tendency that interest in like the history of germany and like the you know identity for the german people was very very much bound up in the project of german orientalism there's a great book that i was actually going to recommend in the grotto recently i don't remember why but it's by a hennig trooper it's got a weird title that i don't quite remember it's called orientalism philology and the illegibility of the modern world i think i've mentioned this on on twitter uh before actually um but yeah it's a very very interesting kind of intellectual history of german orientalism uh okay. it's a, a theoretically dense uh, theoretically dense interrogation of german semitist scholarship from 1820 to 1950 yeah he even talks about heidegger in this book you know so it's interesting yeah i recommend
1: uh, it well, i feel like
3: we should yeah probably stop now before like, we go look, in on wind take. down now because
1: yeah. yeah i'm just looking through stuff i think there's like there there's maybe some uh some history to lay out like even with the uh the arab rebellion in uh 1915 um, yeah because of the british intrigues and like uh what's his name lord lord kitchener Mm -hmm. the british agent in egypt because i guess many people might have seen the uh romantic sweeping you know epic movie from back in the day but i think this kind of does represent britain finally making their move into the Arab world and I guess kind of making a play to shatter the Ottoman Empire and to a large degree to basically undermine Germany at this point uh, mm-hmm. because they felt that uh, Britain had committed an unpardonable error in suffering Germany to establish her political and military ascendancy in the capital of the Ottoman Empire. And uh, they finally do make a move. But there's some intrigue. that I mean, the yeah, the clash between the English and the Germans and then, of course, like how... The Balfour Declaration and uh, the British Mandate actually, you know, came to be. I don't know. Maybe next time. I don't know if there's any pre-World War One stuff left to uh, get to. I guess we could always jump back later and refer to certain things. Yeah, we
3: could like... if we want. I feel like, you know, I'm ready. <laughs> I definitely want to read some more from this book, like The Great War and the Remaking of Palestine, especially like... One yeah, yeah. section that deals, like, with the sort of Christian Orthodox community that I feel like gives uh, interesting light on Antonius, who we've referred to a lot. But he has some great material, Antonius himself, on, like, Sykes-Picot and the Balfour decoration that would be good to read. Yeah, and, and
1: Sykes-Picot, of course. Like, yeah. that that really sets the stage for, like, the modern yeah. Middle East that we have today, not just Palestine.
3: Yes, for sure yeah and also this uh the book i mentioned a couple of times the year of the locust which like collects a bunch of like ottoman soldiers diaries it really like when you're reading it you really kind of like uh have this like kind of like ken burn's civil war type of uh <laughs> vibe where it's like these you know mm-hmm. they're talking about like their crushes and stuff and like the girls they want to marry but like also it's like they hung like you know like separatists from like the gate in jaffa and things like that you know oh it's like God. really
1: yeah, yeah, that'll be good. Maybe good yeah. to open with next time. Like the, we'll just jump right into the the Great War period where I so, so much happens. I think we can.
3: I feel comfortable moving into that. We'll see if like anything. Yeah, I think
1: just... the Zion like things like the Zionism technocracy. I still haven't finished that book, but that that might be good to refer back to when we start talking about when you know, settlement massively increases after the British mandate gets established and because there's already a little bit of a pre-existing infrastructure there by, like, 1918 that then gets kind of a, a real boost in the arm and then with very direct British help. Like, they... I mean, basically, we're talking about the period between World War One and World War Two is when, like, the infrastructure of the future Israeli state is built and then is sort of handed over afterwards but so much happens in uh those decades after in between the two wars and uh i think we will revisit the uh, zionist movement directly i think i definitely want to read maybe not next time but next next time uh that one book uh zionism in the age of dictators Mm -hmm. yes by lenny brenner uh because i already read a couple chapters and that has to do with yeah this interesting period where the british were kind of co-signing it but of course uh there was still a massive uh arab population there and then of course like the wild card of nazi germany coming on the horizon adding a uh, a very special kind of urgency to everything but uh you might be surprised who was uh <laughs> engaging in diplomatic relations <laughs> with the nazis uh in a lot of ways, in the 1930s, I'll, I'll just put it that way. Um, mm. it, it's not the Grand Mufti, uh, or, <laughs> you know. It's not just, uh, or at least not just the Grand Mufti. Yeah. But um, yeah, yeah. And I think at that point, you know, we'll we'll reconnect with the sort of second and third gen uh, followers of Herzl, mm-hmm. you know, uh, many of whom become like household names of Zionism. Yeah. Um, that are really, like, young people involved very early on. Because, again, you know, I think we've emphasized, like, just how young a movement political Zionism is. Like, we're yeah. talking about the 1890s. So the people, that's basically just 20 years before the British mandate in Palestine is established. So that's, like, a lot of ideological and organizational and political legwork uh, in 20 years to get to the point where, you know you have the most powerful empire in the world uh sort of you know protecting your your outpost yeah yeah so i think that's that's a good place to leave it any final thoughts today about Uh, anything we've covered
3: uh, nothing uh that's you know that, that uh no nah, i think i think i you know i can hold off for next time I'm eager okay. to, to get it the next time i'm trying i, to, I have one i have yeah. one thing that i okay. it's
1: been kind of haunting me this whole time i was yeah. gonna bring it up earlier but i think you'd mentioned uh was it with the meeting between abdul hamid and uh and Herzl? yeah where Herzl said in his diary that he brought up sabatai zevi Oh end. yeah, like it was, Abdul no, Hamid it was, was also meeting. familiar with him. No
3: no, 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 that was different. That was the king of Italy. Or, he was ah, the, the king, king of Italy. It, uh, was saying, so, yeah, <laughs> my ancestor was related was like, you know, for uh, involved with sabotage and they had a deal and he was going to be I forget what the name of the the ancestor was. Let me actually quickly uh bring up his uh diary again if I have it here. Yeah, here we go. Interesting. Um yeah this is a stone that i zevi. wish i
1: i wish i had unturned before we were literally recording because i like I, I i'm familiar vaguely with uh Shabbatai zevi and and so i know i feel like in the conspiracy world uh that name sometimes yeah, it pops does. Up, oh, along with sure. uh, yeah. the, the sabbatians and jacob yeah. frank
3: it was charles um, emmanuel who the italian king uh described as his uh, great grandfather sorry his grandfather 11 or 12 times removed Uh, who conspired with Zevi because he wanted to become king of Macedonia.
1: Wow. Okay. Uh, Yeah, okay. Because then I I immediately, like, while we were talking, I Googled, like, Herzl Shabbatai Zevi. Like, I wanted to see if there was a connection because, you know, this guy was a pretty controversial, you know, Jewish uh, spiritual leader in, I think, the 17th century, right? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I'll read because I found an article that does tie a little bit. Um, let me see. Yeah, he is. A, I mean, it's also talking about an Ottoman kind of the Ottoman career of Sabbatai Zevi. So this article is like talking about. It's called "Who Was Shabbatai Zevi?" The Kabbalistic false Messiah gained a mass following in the 17th century until he converted to Islam. Yeah. Um. So and a lot of a, like my, his followers Jewish learning.
3: followed him. Yeah, is is definitely interesting, and he comes up a lot. I think it has to do with like. There's a little bit of crossover with like this sort of anti-Semitic <laughs> flavor of conspiracy theories in Turkey. One of my favorite anecdotes is that another great playwright uh, or early playwright was uh, Erdogan, who one of uh, really? the, yeah h- the play he wrote and also starred in uh, was called uh, Maskomya. I believe, or uh, Yakom, which is, like, Mason, like, Yahud communist, like, because those are, like, the sort wow. of three evil forces that, like, inspire. <laughs> and, like, the hero played yes. by Erdogan is, like, a great man who, like, stand, oh like, you God. know, stands up against, like, the, the Masonic Yahud communists Jesus. who, like, threaten everything. But, yeah, like, so oh, uh, Donmeh, Don Jews is actually, I think, the, um, the big sort of a, uh, Target. So the idea is that these Donmeh Jews, yeah, they're, they're, they're called a Donmeh, and they're related to the, the Sabatian Subeti, uh, movement. Like, okay. they're kind of blamed for, like, uh, you know, or they're, like, a big target, not, not blamed for, for everything at all Turkish conspiracies, because I'm sure they, they run the gamut in the same way they do in the United States. But um, yeah. they're a very popular uh, target, and the idea is that, like, these Donmeh Jews converted to Islam, but they kept... They're doing exactly. They're taqiyya doing tukia. So uh, like these yeah, people yeah. in government or whatever who seem to be Muslims, I'm sure that Erdogan himself is probably called done by some people. You know, it's kind of like it's oh. like that
1: theory that like the Saudi royal family is they're actually like uh you know Sephardic Jews or something like that. It's like, exactly that like that. I forget yeah. who was pushing that. But yes, <laughs> yeah. Maybe I want to read just a little. Maybe this is like an interesting, uh tantalizing place to. To close, because I still would like to look more and see. Because the fact that like Herzl brought that up, it seems like he was kind of familiar. Oh, in fact, he compared himself. Shabbat- he compared well, that, himself yeah, to that's him. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Said, that's what I'm going to get into. He has a great um, quote
3: where he says, "The difference between myself and Sabbatai Zevi, the way I imagine him, apart from the difference in the technical means inherent in the times, is that the Sabbatai made himself great so as to be the equal of the great of the earth. I, however, find the great small, as small as myself." Okay, wow, humble yeah. brag. Yeah, it's um, definitely a yeah, humble yeah, brag. Yeah. yeah, all right. So, so I just want to read a grandiose little bit. of a way to call yourself small, but anyway.
1: Yeah. yeah, I know, I know. All right, so I just want to read a little bit from this article by Matt Plen on okay. myjewishlearning.com. So this is on like, sure. a Jewish website. All right. Uh, so it's not like a, an anti Semitic screed like Herzl uh, would write, but it's just, it gives them some background about maybe the influence. And yeah, maybe, uh, maybe Herzl was like drawing a little bit from this. So. They write While faith in the coming of the Messiah is a linchpin of Judaism, Jews have traditionally taken a patient, quietistic approach to their messianic beliefs. Since the devastation wreaked by false Messiah Bar Kochba and his rebellion against the Romans, and the centuries of persecution caused by another messianic movement, Christianity, Jews have been understandably suspicious about anyone's claim to be God's anointed. The rabbis of the Talmud went so far as to introduce specific prohibitions against messianic agitation, instituting the three oaths which prohibited any attempt to, quote, force the end by bringing the Messiah before his allotted time. Yet in the mid-17th century, belief in the false Messiah, Shabbatai Zevi, spread like wildfire throughout the Jewish world, sweeping up entire communities and creating a crisis of faith unprecedented in Jewish history. Shabbatai Zevi was said to be born on the 9th of Av in 1626 to a wealthy family of merchants in Smyrna, in Izmir, Turkey, today. He received a thorough Talmudic education and still in his teens was ordained as a hakham, a member of the rabbinic elite. However, Shabbatai Zevi was interested less in Talmud than in Jewish mysticism. Starting in his late teens, he studied Kabbalah, attracting a group of followers whom he initiated into the secrets of the mystical tradition, Shabbatai Zevi battled with what might now be diagnosed as severe bipolar disorder. (laughs) He understood his condition in religious terms, experiencing his manic phases as moments of illumination, and his times of depression as periods of fall, when God's face was hidden from him. While at times of depression he became a semi-recluse, when illuminated he felt compelled to contravene Jewish law, perform bizarre rituals... Masim Zari, or strange acts, and publicly pronounce the prescribed name of God. In 1648, Shabbatai Zevi declared himself to be the Messiah, but did not make much of an impression on the Smyrna community, which had become accustomed to his eccentricities. Nonetheless, the rabbis banished him from his hometown, and he spent much of the 1650s traveling through Greece and Turkey. He was eventually expelled from the Jewish communities in Salonika and Constantinople for violating the commandments and performing blasphemous acts. In the 1660s, he arrived in Egypt via Israel, Palestine um, mm-hmm. back then. During because, like, this period,
3: Constantinople and Israel. Like, yeah, yeah, well, it does. Really, it, did, it
1: did say now, parentheses now Istanbul, but they just said yeah, Israel as if stuff. it was
3: Constantinople then. Anyway, whatever. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah,
1: during this period, he led a quiet life, displaying no messianic pretensions. The turning point in his messianic career came in 1665 as the result of a meeting with his self-appointed prophet Nathan of Gaza interesting nathan the prophet so nathan was a man of great intellectual stature a kabbalist and an ascetic who shabbatai zevi approached for a mystical remedy to his spiritual malaise Is this like
3: an israeli version of the dhamma conspiracy that like some guy from gaza like told him to do yeah this, it's not know? real yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah fake this guy from yeah. who
1: moved from uh saudi arabia yeah, to yeah, pretend exactly. to be a native Nathan uh, tried to give him the Shabbatai of his messianic identity, having had this secret revealed to him in a vision, and during Shavuot, uh, Shavuot, uh, well, Shavuot, uh, that's probably I don't know, 1665, uh, publicly announced the appearance of the Messiah. Oh, Shavuot, during his, I think it's like a month, like a Jewish month, Oh, right? yeah, 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 okay, so during the next period of illumination, Shabbatai Zevi consented to these claims and initiated his own messianic career. Most rabbis opposed him, but aside from issuing writs of excommunication and banishing him from Jerusalem, took no action against him. Nathan, however, initiated a mass movement of repentance, fasting and ascetic acts to prepare the way for the coming redemption. In September 1665, he announced that a fundamental cosmic shift had taken place and that within the year, without war, Shabbatai Zevi would take the Turkish sultan's crown and make the sultan his servant. After that, Zevi would bring back the lost tribes of Israel and marry Rebekah, the daughter of a resurrected Moses. The sultan wow. would then rebel, and the, ensu- and the ensuing war would usher in the tumultuous birth pangs of the Messiah. In the same month, Shabbatai Zevi traveled to Aleppo and Smyrna amidst an atmosphere of religious agitation. Several sightings of Elijah were reported. Rabbis and communal leaders were swept up in the excitement. When Shabbatai Zevi uh, reverted to a state of ecstasy and began performing Ma'asim Zarim the rabbis tried to stop him, but it was too late. With his followers, he stormed the synagogue of his opponents, called up family members and friends, including women, to the reading of the Torah, I assume that's not allowed, and had them pronounce the divine name in their blessings. Right, the women comparing aren't his, allowed
3: to read the Torah, yeah.
1: And you don't pronounce God's name. Yeah, right, so these no. are He's doing heretical shit. Comparing his rabbinical opponents to unclean they're human animals, folks. Yeah. Uh, comparing his rabbinical opponents to unclean animals, he declared himself the anointed one of God. Messianic fervor began to spread through the communities of the diaspora. Repentance, extreme asceticism, scourging, and fasting alternated with periods of ecstatic joy. Messianic prayers written by Nathan Okaza were published. While some Jews began to make travel plans for their imminent departure to the land of Israel, Palestine, others refused, believing that they would miraculously be transported there on clouds. Uh, Daniel Pinto. It's like Heaven's Gate. uh, Yeah, I know. This is actually one of the first people to actually advocate that Jews should go back to Palestine was a uh, was Sabbatai, <laughs> Shabbatai Zevi okay. so what made the Jewish world so receptive to the false messianism of Shabbatai Zevi in 1648-49 Cossack bands led by Bogdan Chmelnytsky Massacred 300,000 Jews in Ukraine amid unprecedented acts of cruelty. Many communities that escaped were then devastated in the Russian-Swedish War of 1655. In this context, the Jewish people's historical dream of redemption from the bondage of exile took on a new degree of urgency and desperation. In these communities, Shabbatai Zevi found a receptive audience. Uh, but Chabadianism influenced communities all over the Jewish world, many of whom were unaffected by Chmelnitsky and had no significant history of persecution. So theory dead.
3: defeated. Uh, yeah, like again, yeah, I this guess is so. like based so, on the whole I- the idea that like, oh Jews always wanted to go back to Israel. It's like, and it was so deep. And like their longing was so great, that they like were swindled by like some guy who seemed crazy in every other way. Yeah. It well, make they, they kind of. Yeah. Like, well, they
1: say that here, like uh, basically that because of, there's no history of direct persecution, the movement's popularity must be understood in its theological context. The 16th century had seen the development of a popular new religious movement emanating from the town of Safed in northern Palestine. Uh, Lurianic Kabbalah. The new doctrine held that the creation of the world had sent the presence of God into exile, shattering the divine light into countless sparks and concealing them within the shells of mundane reality. By uncovering and raising up these sparks through mystical prayer and rituals, and MDMA and Psytrance, uh, the <laughs> redemption, not only of the Jewish people, but of the cosmos and of God Himself, could be achieved. Whereas previously Kabbalah had been speculative and esoteric, it was now a popular movement, shot through with messianic tension. The appearance of a messiah who, by contravening Jewish law, could descend in the depths of sin to redeem the last of the sparks, invigorated the Jewish people with the sense that the end of the exile was at hand. The Shabbatai Zevi's initial reception was conditioned by these religious factors. Once inaugurated, the movement took on a momentum of its own. Around the Jewish world, a divide emerged between believers and their opponents. In many communities, the anti Shabbatai minority, including many rabbis, were careful not to antagonize their congregations for fear of terror and reprisals. Thus, any effective opposition was neutralized. So then, and I remember this is also a thing with conspiracy heads. Uh, in 1666, uh, oh, 1666, no. when the year that like he was supposed to unveil as the Messiah, whatever, Shabbatai Zevi was arrested in Constantinople after a period of imprisonment during which he held court as Messiah, replaced the fast of the 9th of Av, With a festival celebrating his birthday and began to sign his letters, I am the Lord your God, Shabbatai Zevi, (laughs) he was denounced (laughs) for fomenting sedition and brought before the Sultan. Now in a depressive state, he denied ever having made messianic claims. Offered the choice of apostasy or death, he chose to convert to Islam. Shabbatai Zevi became Aziz Mehmed Effendi and with a royal pension lived until 1676, outwardly a Muslim but secretly participating in Jewish ritual. His letters reveal at the time of his death he still believed in his messianic mission. While Shabbatai Zevi's conversion created a f- crisis of faith for most of his followers, the movement lived on, sustained by esoteric Kabbalistic explanations for the apostasy and by its adherents' psychological need to prevent their deep seated religious worldview from falling apart. The movement survived into the early 18th century when the Shabbataians divided into two camps moderates, who combined their secret messianic faith with adherence to Jewish law, and radicals, who set about covertly spreading their heretical doctrine that the quote, nullification of the Torah was its true fulfillment. This radical wing of the Shabbatai movement achieved a short lived revival under Jacob Frank, a Polish Jew who, in 1756, was heralded as the reincarnation of Shabbatai Zevi. Shabbatianism subsequently died out as a significant feature in Jewish life, but its long-term impact was far-reaching. Its most immediate influence was the formulation of a new version of Jewish mysticism, the Hasidic movement, born in late 18th century Poland. The quietistic, inwardly spiritual tone of early Hasidism was a conscious reaction against the messianic excesses of the Shabbateans, while the Hasidic Jews' unconditional faith in their Rebbe had as its precedent the dynamic between Shabbatai Zevi and his followers, just like the like the 20th century Rebbe, <laughs> yeah. who like, Cory Booker loved. Um, in the late 20th century, the resurgence of messianic fervor among some Chabad uh, Lubavitch Hasidic Jews, the Rebbe followers, lent credence to this relationship. Historian Chaim Hillel Ben Sassan took this idea one step further, arguing that the whirlwind of popularity and enthusiasm generated by a secular Zionist like Theodor Herzl at the end of the 19th century cannot be understood without reference to the Shabbatean movement. Hmm. Mm. Interesting. So, I mean, and it sounds that this article didn't get too much into like Herzl's like personal, well, we already read the quotes about how he said, like, I'm like him, (laughs) yeah. Basically, but you can see a lot of uh, you can see a lot of similarities between the two. Um, Even though uh, Herzl did not kind of literally religiously proclaim himself, you know, Mashiach or Messiah. He
3: certainly didn't. Well, he did like discourage the comparisons, but uh, he mentioned them a lot, Uh, and they definitely were constantly, yeah, brought up. So I wonder
1: if he had because he was so removed from most Jewish religious tradition. But I wonder if he had expressed at any point like interest in studying the Kabbalah or something like that i wasn't able to see any direct evidence uh that yeah he'd sort I of studied his text or thought of yet. himself as kind of i mean i feel like he, he would have
3: so- like thought like really i don't know i feel like he would have been very negative about that but i'm not sure i feel like that's exactly the kind of thing he would have disliked as like especially superstitious but i don't know
1: that's true and yet he has this kind of freudian fevered dream obsession thing that does give birth and and almost sometimes leans into this idea of him being almost like a little bit mystical in his uh his drive and his energy and his vision to manifest uh a Jewish,
3: yeah, like he a has that uh, Wagnerian Nations kind of mysticism for sure. So, yeah, but I don't know mm-hmm. if that is compatible with, but I don't know, maybe uh, it might be a German something. mysticism
1: a little bit. Well, yeah, he did but, love archaicizing rituals and uh, like uh, playing on the subconscious of crowds and manipulating mass politics, which is uh, yeah. would become kind of ahead of the curve for the dawn of the 20th century, but yeah i think now we'll pause there yeah and um we'll come back next time with some heavy and complicated world war one shit and then we'll finally talk about uh some of the bigger villains in this story uh the the great brits yeah and uh the role they played in manifesting theodore Herzl's destiny yeah (laughs) basically right so That'll be it for now, but until next time, dear listeners, stay vigilant. Peace.
0: Yes.
2: Me!